of our campuses. Again, greetings to all of our campuses. We are so glad you are here. Uh, early in the service, we um, highlighted Kid Soap. I love Kid Soap. I had the privilege had had the privilege of mentoring three different kids over the past few years, and it's been it's fantastic. An hour a week makes a significant difference in the life and destiny of a child. So I just want to encourage you prayerfully consider being a Kids Hope mentor. You will not regret it. So I absolutely love this time of year, and not just because the leaves are changing. I love it because of all the sports going on at the same time. I mean, we have baseball playoffs coming up, right? Pro football happening, college football, all sorts of high school sports. It's awesome. I love cheering for the Broncos and the UNC Bears and the Colorado Rockies, but my foundational loyalty is to Kansas State University. I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, went to K-State, so I'm a diehard, bleed, purple, K-State Wildcat fan. Please do not make the mistake of asking me how my Jayhawks are doing. Wrong team. Okay, but I love watching sports and cheering my team on. Now, over the years, I've noticed a particular cheer that is often yelled from the stands at sporting events. Have you ever heard this cheer? Look alive. Look alive. Many of us have probably used that cheer, yelled that cheer. I'm sure I have. But the other day, I started to think about that cheer, and I realized that is probably the most pathetic cheer in the entire world. I mean, seriously, look alive. The score may be 50 to nothing. You're getting beat up all over the field. You're dying out there. But make sure you look alive. Look like you're ready to play even if you aren't. I mean, looking alive may work for about 10 seconds. But once the football is hiked, once the volleyball is served, looking alive doesn't help us at all. So as I was thinking about that cheer, I had this sinking realization that that is the motto that many of us live by. Those two words describe the way many of us live our lives. Look alive. Stay busy. You may be dying inside. You may have this growing and this gnawing sense of hopelessness or emptiness. Some sin may be eating your lunch. Some fear is holding you captive. But the important thing is to look alive. Pretend you have your act together. Put up a good front, keep smiling, just look alive. I mean, how many of us are subconsciously living by that motto at work or at school or at our small group or in our marriage? Just look alive, put up a good front. Now, let's be honest, I mean, looking alive actually may work for a while. It may get us some accolades and some promotions and a great GPA or whatever, but it doesn't really satisfy. Deep down, we long for something more, something real. We don't want to just look alive. We want to be alive. Deion Sanders was an amazing athlete, one of the few players to play two sports at a professional level. And as he reflected upon one of the highlights in his sports career, he had this to say. I remember winning the Super Bowl for that that year. After the game, I was the first one out of the locker room, first one to the press conference, and the first one to go home. And I remember my wife, Carolyn, saying to me, baby, you just won the Super Bowl. Don't you have a party downstairs or something to go to? And I just said, nah, and rolled over and went to sleep. That was the same week I bought myself a brand new $275,000 Lamborghini. And I hadn't even driven it a mile before I realized, no, 
That's not it. That's not what I'm looking for. It's got to be something else. I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry. He had it all, and yet he felt empty. He looked alive, but he wasn't experiencing life. So how do we break out of a life that looks alive so that we can experience real life? That's what we're talking about in this current teaching series that we started last week. We're calling this series Life Inspired. And I love the word inspired because it speaks of this idea of being awakened to real life, to purpose and passion and hope, being awakened. And that awakening happens because of something outside of ourselves, right? Inspiration comes from outside of ourselves. Something so awesome, so amazing that when we see it, when we experience it, it radically changes the way we live. It inspires us. Now, the key question is, where do we find that? If it's not found in, in pretending we have our act together, and if it's not found in winning the Super Bowl or attaining some other achievement, where is this life-inspired found? Where can we move beyond a looking alive life to, a, to an experience of real life? Well, we'll listen to, to Jesus' invitation in John 10, 10. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That sounds exactly like what we're talking about. Not just looking alive, but being alive. Living every moment of every day with this sense of inspiration, this sense of purpose and hope and, and transformation. So how do we do that? Well, that, that's, what the, that's what this entire teaching series is all about. As we look at various examples in Scripture of people who experience life-inspired we're going to discover that there are three key aspects to this kind of inspired life. Embracing something, experiencing something, and engaging in something. Embrace, experience, engage. And so we're spending a few weeks unpacking each one of these. Last week, we started the series. So last week, we started by looking at the first key, embrace. What must we embrace in order to experience life inspired. Well, Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, as he announces what his ministry is all about. Verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. See, Jesus is inviting us into a life in which the kingdom of God, the power, the, the presence of God is active in us. And at the heart of this activity is this thing Jesus refers to as the good news, the gospel. See, in order to experience life inspired, we must continually embrace the gospel. Not just once. We must continually embrace the gospel. We must continually live in the reality of this good news that Jesus died on the cross for us, opening a door for us to experience life. So how do we, how do we live in this gospel? How do we live in this reality? How do we continually embrace the gospel? Well, Jesus tells us exactly what it looks like. He tells us how in verse 15. I just read, repent and believe the good news. Repentance and faith. 
Those are the keys to us embracing the gospel, continually embracing the gospel. So what does it look like to continually live in repentance and continually live in faith? Well, in Luke 15, Jesus gives us this amazing picture of someone who embraced both of these. And in doing so, they actually um, went from looking alive to being fully alive. We started looking at this story last week as we unpacked what repentance looks like. Today, we're going to continue looking at this story, but our focus is now going to be on the faith side. What does it look like to live by faith? So in Luke 15, Jesus tells us a story of a father who had two sons. One day, the younger son went to his dad and demanded his portion of the inheritance. Basically, the younger son was saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Really, I don't care about you. I just want your money. Now, the father had every right to disown his son, but he didn't. Instead, he gave him his portion of the inheritance. And and this son then went out and squandered it all on wild living. He blew it all in Vegas. He went through the entire inheritance. So so after he had had gone through the inheritance, he, he got a job. He didn't have any money, didn't have any food, so he got a job feeding pigs. And pretty soon, he was so hungry and destitute that, that the food he was feeding the pigs started to look pretty good to him. And in that moment, something incredibly powerful happened in his heart. Repentance. Jesus says that he came to his senses. In other words, he suddenly realized what he had done. He saw his sin from God's perspective. And instead of shifting the blame or excusing the sin or minimizing it or all the things we do, he owned it. He took full responsibility. He confessed his sin to God and to his father, and he chose to leave his sin. That's repentance. We we talked last week about how life-giving repentance is. Why is it life-giving? Because if we don't see our sin, if we just minimize it, or ignore it, it will continue to destroy our lives, causing us to look alive, but not be fully alive. It's like living with an undiagnosed disease. If you don't know or admit it's there, you won't get treatment. So repentance, as we saw last week, is a beautiful thing that enables us to experience life inspired. Repentance, and again, this is a continual thing, it opens the door for us to experience the second part of a gospel response, faith. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. When we admit our brokenness, our sinfulness, we are then able to look, to truly look to this amazing Savior, Jesus And all that he is, we're able to experience all that he is. Faith is awakened in us, a faith that can truly transform, which is exactly what we see happening in this story. Look at the transformation. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring uh, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is such a beautiful picture 
of what it looks like to live by faith. This story teaches us that to live by faith is to live in the Father's embrace. To live by faith is to live in the Father's embrace. It is a hard posture in which we are continually living in the Father's embrace. So what does that mean? What does that look like in our everyday lives? Well, there are actually three images in this story that show us how we can live by faith. First, to live in the Father's embrace means to rest in God's unbridled affection for you. It means to rest in God's unbridled affection for you. In this story, Jesus tells us that that as the father embraces his son, the father kisses him. And the word used here means kissing him over and over and over again. This this was not a, a polite kiss that you give to your aunt. No, this was a visible, tangible demonstration of affection, of love. And here's Jesus' point. This is God's heart towards you and me. Even when we sin, he loves you. No matter what sin you've committed, no matter what what inheritance you have squandered, no matter what shame you've brought to your family or yourself or your God, the gospel says that because of Jesus, God's heart, his affection is towards you always. In fact, let me say this a little bit differently. God not only loves you, he likes you. He likes you. Sometimes we as Christians have this sterile understanding of God's love. Oh, Jesus loves me, this I know. John 3, 16, God so loved the world. We know, we know in our head, right? We know at one level that God loves us. We know the right theological answer. But let me ask you this. Do you know that God likes you? Do you know that God likes you, that he likes being with you, that his face is towards you? You see, this takes it out of the theoretical and makes it real. The father kisses the son over and over again. Can you imagine God the father kissing you over and over and over again? Can you rest in this amazing truth that God loves you that much? You matter to him. You matter to him. See, I think this is one of the primary reasons that more of us don't live an inspired life. It's because we don't really believe that God loves us or even likes us. And when we don't believe God loves us, guess what we do? We start looking for that love and validation and affirmation in all sorts of other places, many of them unhealthy places, in in power, in impressing people, in pornography, in in hookups, in, in getting high. I mean, I know in my own life, I've struggled with workaholism at various times, and I, and I realize, I now realize that this addiction to work is, is it's often rooted in an attempt to prove my value as a person. Rather than resting in the Father's love, I at times am trying to earn that some other way. To validate, to find affirmation in what I do. So imagine the impact 
Imagine the impact in our lives if every day we woke up with a heartfelt realization that God likes me and you, that God likes you. Imagine the impact of that. In his book, The Wisdom of Tenderness, Brennan Manning tells the story of Edward Farrell, uh, a man who traveled from his hometown of Detroit to visit Ireland to, to celebrate his uncle's 80th birthday in Ireland. Early on the morning of his uncle's birthday, they, they went for a walk along the shores of Lake Killarney. And as the sun rose, his uncle turned and stared straight into the breaking light. For 20 minutes, they stood there in silence. And then his elderly uncle began to skip along the shoreline, a radiant smile on his face. After catching up with him, Edward asked, Uncle Seamus, you look very happy. Do you want to tell me why? Yes, lad, the old man said, tears washing down his face. You see, he said, you see, the father is very fond of me. Ah, me father is so very fond of me. How might your life look different? How might your heart be impacted if you knew deep in your soul that your father is very fond of you? Not just that he loves you, but that he actually likes you as well. I mean, that one truth, that one truth can free us to stop trying to look alive and instead experience real life. To live in the Father's embrace is to rest in his un unbridled affection for you. Secondly, we see in this story that to live in the Father's embrace means to receive God's absolute forgiveness of you. To receive God's absolute forgiveness. Jesus tells us that the Father puts a robe on his son. He is, he is covering the son's shame and nakedness. He, he, he is covering the evidences of his son's sin. And not just with any robe. Jesus says that the Father asked for the best robe. Well, who in the house would have the best robe? The Father would. This is the Father's robe that's being given to the Son. See, this is a picture of the amazing forgiveness that God the Father offers us. God sent his best, his one and only Son, to pay for our sin. Jesus' blood covers us completely. He removes our shame. He clothes us in his righteousness. We are forgiven completely. All of our sins are paid for. Now, here's the question. Do we believe this? I, again, we probably have the right theological answer, but do we believe this? <clears throat> I mean, that, that's the issue, right? This is a faith issue. This is a faith issue, living by faith, right? Our, our experience of the gospel is all about faith. Do we really believe that our sins are forgiven? I mean, let, let's be honest. There are a lot of us here who don't really believe this. We believe it for the minor sins, but some of us here don't really believe that Jesus' blood has washed us and cleansed us of every sin. We don't really believe that. 
that sexual sin or sins of which we're so ashamed, that abortion, that failed marriage that we contributed to, the money we stole. See, here's the thing we often, we often forget. Jesus is not just a little savior for little sinners. He is a big savior for big sinners like you and me. Do you, do you really think that your sin is so special and unique that Jesus' blood isn't enough to cover it? Do you really think that? Your sin is so special, it's so unique that his blood is not enough to cover that sin. Do we really believe that? You know, I, I think you're giving yourself way too much credit Now, I often hear people, people ask, well, how can I forgive myself for what I've done? I know God forgives me, but how can I forgive myself? See, that, that's, a, that's a tricky one. You see, when we can't forgive ourselves, what it really means is that we're still hanging on to a false understanding of our righteousness. That's why we can't forgive ourselves. We're still hanging on <laughs> to a false understanding of our righteousness. We can't believe we sinned that badly. See, we're not truly embracing the idea that we're sinners in need of a Savior. See, that's how you forgive yourself. You own your sin, not just to God. You own it to yourself, and you realize you are just like every other human being walking the planet. Sometimes we screw up. But here's the deal. Your, your sin is not a surprise to God. It, it's not something he didn't pay for on the cross. Remember the robe Remember the robe Jesus has put on you in the gospel. It is the robe of his righteousness. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about your past. It's not about what you've done or haven't done. It's all about him. He's done the work. Our job is to believe this. Our job is to believe that this robe truly covers us, to continually declare to our souls that we are absolutely and completely forgiven in Jesus. No need to look alive. No need to pretend you have it all together when you know that in Jesus, your sins, all of them, are forgiven. <laughs> Well, the third way we live by faith, a third way we live in the Father's embrace is to accept your new identity. Accept your new identity. Jesus tells us that the Father put a ring on his son's finger. In that culture, a ring, the ring often symbolized authority. It symbolized identity. So here is this son who is so ashamed of his sin that he, he realizes he's not even worthy to be called son. So he's so ashamed of his sin, he's not even worthy, right? But his father greets him by giving him a ring, a very a tangible very and very public symbol of the fact that he is this man's son. He is not a servant in the household. He is a beloved son. This is his identity, not his past sin. Not his wild living, not his rebellion and his public dishonoring of his father. No, none of that defines him from the father's perspective. What defines him is his relationship with his father, and that has not changed. He is given a ring to declare the truth that he is still a beloved son. 
He is still a beloved son. I mean, do, do you realize, do you and I realize that, that the, moment, the moment you embraced the gospel, the moment you placed your trust in Jesus, at that moment you were adopted into God's family permanently. See, adoption is a legally binding permanent thing. You are a beloved son or daughter of the God of the universe. And again, here's the question. Are you and I living in that reality? Do we believe that? Are we living in that reality? See, my sense, my sense is that often we as Christians are living like orphans. We're living like, like orphans. We're, we're somber. We're fearful. We're afraid of an election. We're afraid of an economic collapse. We're afraid of the harbinger. We're afraid of Muslims. I mean, what is up with all that? I don't understand why Christians sometimes seem to be the most fearful people on this planet, especially when we realize that we are sons and daughters of the creator and Lord of the universe. I mean, the God who created the mountains and the sea, the God who holds the stars in place is our dad. He's our dad. He, he is a father who, who promises to never leave us or forsake us, who promises that he will provide for our every need, no matter what happens. And in fact, in this story, in this story, we are told that the father put sandals on the son's feet. This is a practical provision for a very real need. The son's feet were probably bruised and bleeding from the journey. And the father notices this and took care of this need. See, this is our Heavenly Father. He promises to care for us. He promises to take care of the future. He promises to provide for His children. Why then are we so somber? Why then are we so fearful? Now, please hear me. I am not minimizing the very real battles that many people have, many friends of mine have, with the debilitating anxiety and, and depression. With those, I'm, I'm not minimizing that. They, they are complex and horrible things to suffer with. And so I'm not trying to offer simplistic solutions to complex things like that. What I am addressing is, a more, is, is more of the overall Christian attitude towards life and circumstances. I just don't understand why so many Christians are so negative and so fearful. Actually, I do understand why. It's because we don't really believe the gospel. We don't really believe the gospel. We don't really believe that we are God's sons and daughters. We're just looking alive. We're pretending. But you see, what God invites us to experience in the gospel is a life of profound hope and joy in him as his beloved children. I mean, Jesus tells us that the father here throws a huge party to celebrate. This is our God. He likes to party. He is a God of joy, and he invites his children to live in this joy. It's not a joy that's dependent upon circumstances. It's beyond that. We have a God who loves us, who forgives us, who has adopted us into his family, who gives us the hope of heaven beyond this life. I mean, talk about inspiring. Why would we try to look alive when all of these things are ours in Jesus? Again, the issue is faith. 
It's faith. It's not how much information we have up here. It is faith. Do we every day choose to believe these things are true? Do we choose to live in our Father's embrace? And let's be honest, a lot of times we don't. The answer is no, we don't. We don't choose to live this way. Why is that? Well, what keeps us from living in the Father's embrace? Jesus tells us one of the biggest culprits, one of the biggest reasons. He tells us in this story by describing the older brother who rather than living in repentance and faith chose a different path. Look with me beginning, or I'll read this beginning in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. See, he, he's not celebrating. He's not interested in celebrating. He is ticked. He is furious. Why is he so angry? This is actually a faith issue. This is a faith issue. What is the older brother trusting in? What is his faith in? His own ability, his own behavior, his own morality. I mean, he's the good son. He's the moral one. He's the one who kept the rules. See, that's what he's trusting in. That's how he's measuring his worth and value. I mean, you can just hear in his response the drumbeat of performance. All these years I've been slaving for you. It is so sad. His father is incredibly loving. We've already seen that. And yet this son saw his dad as a slave driver, as a demanding boss. I mean, here he was, a beloved son, and yet living like he was an employee. He was desperately trying to to, to make the grade, to look alive. I mean, ironically and tragically, his good behavior resulted in him missing the father's love. It resulted in him missing the father's embrace. He became an angry, bitter, self-righteous, judgmental person. All because he was trusting in his own ability, in his own goodness, rather than resting in his father's love. He looked alive, but he was actually missing out on life inspired. What about you? Are, are, are you and, and me, are, are, we living, are we living like an employee of God or like a child of God? D- d- does God feel to you more like a boss or a loving father? That's a really important question to answer. So how can we tell? Well, w- w- let me just ask it this way. Which brother looks more like you? Are, are you often angry at God? for not giving you what you think you deserve for all your good behavior? Are you critical of other people who aren't nearly as moral as you are? 
Do, do you find yourself being driven more and, my, more and more by performance? Is your primary spiritual mantra, suck it up, try harder, look alive? See, if, if any of those things are true of us, we're not living in the fullness of the gospel. But instead, we're trusting in our own effort. And it makes us really cranky people and driven, angry people. So what's the answer? I love how the father in the story responds to his angry, driven, self-righteous son. It's the same way he responds to us. He basically offers him the gospel. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this, brothers of your, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I, I love this. The father points the son back to this relationship that was already his. That's what he's doing. He's pointing him back to a relationship that is already his. He doesn't have to earn it. He doesn't have to work for it. He is not an employee. He is and forever will be a beloved son. And this is exactly what God the Father says to all of us who are in Christ. He is continually saying to us, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. That is absolutely true. The critical question is, will we believe it? Will we choose to believe that he really does like us and that he really does forgive us and that he really has adopted us as his children? See, that's what makes all the difference between looking alive or living a life inspired. Will we choose to live in the Father's embrace? Let's, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, would you come and take these words and apply them as we respond to you? Lord, we don't want to just remember points in our head. We want to embrace these truths, to believe them. And so I pray for that. So which son are you more like? Are you living in the Father's embrace or are you trusting in your own ability, your own effort, your own goodness? The Father says to every one of us here, he says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. That's the relationship he has given you in Jesus so I pray, Lord, that we would live in this reality. Lord, I pray for all of us here that we would live in the truth of your absolute, your, your unbridled affection for us. That you not only love us, you like us. <laughs> you like hanging out with us. You like us. I pray for each one of us here, you would stir in our hearts this recognition of your love, that we would live in that reality more and more. Holy Spirit, do your work. In Romans 5, it says that you, that you pour out the love of the Father into our hearts, and we pray for more of that. Holy Spirit, more 
of that love poured out. And I want to pray, secondly, for us to more deeply experience your forgiveness, the truth that you have forgiven us. There is no sin we have committed that isn't covered by your blood. And we thank you for that. And I pray, I pray you would, that, that, that we would live in the reality of being clothed by the best robe in the house, the robe of Jesus' righteousness, that we would know we are covered, we are cleansed, that our sins are forgiven. And so I, I just pray for your hearts there out there. I pray your hearts to receive this truth. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. And then I want to pray as well, Lord, for all of us here. We would believe that we're adopted into your family permanently. The documents have been signed. And that we would live in this reality of being sons and daughters of the king of the universe. Lord, forgive us when we live in fear. Forgive us when we live in negativity and, and so, somber attitude in the midst of all that's going on. Forgive us for losing sight of the joy that is ours in you. Nothing can change that. So I pray for that as well. We would more fully embrace the fact that we are sons and daughters of yours. More faith in our hearts to believe these things. And I want to just give an invitation or you can just keep your head bowed and just kind of enjoy the Father's embrace here. But there may be some of you and what you need to do is take the first step. There is a first step into this relationship I've been describing and that is by trusting Jesus. See, a lot of us think that the way into a relationship with God is by trying really hard. Just go to church when you can, be nice to people, pray when you can, get baptized, whatever. There's some work we do that somehow earns God's acceptance of us. If we, you know, at the end of our life, if our good deeds outweigh our bad, then we're in. It doesn't work that way. We're all separated from God because of our sin. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. That's why he had to die. If we could save ourselves, he didn't have to die on the cross. And there may be some of you here, and you're like, I need that. I want the relationship you described tonight. I want to know God loves me. I want to have my sins forgiven and I want to be adopted into God's family. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer right now where you can open your heart and receive Jesus. So pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy and I'm not. I acknowledge that my sin separates me from a relationship with you, but I don't want to be separated from you. And I believe that you... Even though I couldn't get to you, you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross in my place. You took all of my sin upon yourself. You took the hit I should have paid. And I choose right now to bring you my whole self. I place my whole self in your hands, my faults and fears and failures and sins and shame and questions and doubts. I just bring it all. And I place it on you, Jesus. And I receive you now. Forgive my sin, past, present, and even the sins I haven't committed yet. All of them forgiven. 
clothe me with this robe of righteousness and come live in me through the presence of your Holy Spirit. Change me from the inside out. Father, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Thank you. Help them grow in this new relationship with you. If you prayed that prayer, I encourage you to tell someone and I encourage you to jump into our Alpha course. Just started last Wednesday. It's not too late. Wednesday night, you can find out more information. A great way to help you grow in your faith. So Lord, I pray for all of us here. You would continue through the presence of your spirit, make the gospel come more alive and that our faith would grow, that we would continually and increasingly live in our Father's embrace. You are an amazing God. And we praise you. We praise you. Now we have an opportunity to, to respond to the truth of God's word in worship, in a few minutes of worship here. So why don't we stand as the worship team is going to lead us, both campuses here, just stand. If at some point you want to sit down, that's totally fine. So Lord, set us free right now to respond with joy and praise and adoration of you and how awesome you are. Set us free to worship you, Lord.